Right, we try and stay true to our core market or one adjacency away as we buy those complementary products. But certainly you can go out and buy a lot of overlapping products. And um, there's companies that do that in every market. The challenge that rises out of that is you can't keep all those products. Mm -hmm. You've got to start to sunset those or have some strategy because you can't continue to invest in four products that do the exact same thing. Um, yeah, and you do have cost synergies, you know, you, you don't, you're going to have a lot of really overlapping resources. So from a pure financial engineering perspective, those can be very, very successful. And it's just a different model. We've chosen to not roll up the market. We've chosen to, you know, continue to piece together those solutions, best of breed, but now we integrate them. So the big question is this, how do you grow your SaaS company? In an era where information is everywhere and every book, expert, blog, and podcast is evangelizing different paths to scale, how do you figure out which path is right for you and your SaaS company? My name is Shiv Narayanan and I'm your host and growth advisor. Formerly, I was the CMO of Wild Apricot and grew to 20 million in ARR without a sales team. This podcast is about a simple idea, that growth can be engineered. Each episode, I will help you filter through the noise and curate and distill growth strategies to help you succeed in growing your SaaS company. Welcome to How to SaaS. Let's get started. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about how you can work with How to SaaS and what kinds of clients we work with. We have three solutions. We provide CMO consulting, where we walk you through our nine box marketing framework to fully audit your funnel and marketing activities and we give you a strategy and roadmap to scale your demand generation and digital marketing. Number two, we provide PE advisory services where we work with private equity investors to scale the growth of their portfolio companies through consulting programs, training, and board member services. And number three, we run the world's flagship demand generation training program for SaaS companies and their marketing executives, leaders, and team members. It's a 12-week intensive that gives you the frameworks you need to scale your SaaS company's demand generation using paid media, SEO, content marketing, nurture programs, website optimization, and more. To check out all these solutions and to get more information, set up a free consult at www.howtosass.com. Also, if you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher and leave us a rating or review so that other people looking for content like this can also discover it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, on to the show. If you've listened to this podcast for some time, you probably know that Wild Apricot was acquired by Personify back in 2017. In fact, episode 21 of the How to SaaS podcast, I actually go through the entire process behind that acquisition, including the initial meetings, the due diligence process, and leading up to the closing of the deal and what happened a little bit afterwards. After the acquisition, the Wild Apricot leadership team was exposed to Personify's larger strategy to take over the membership, nonprofit, and association market. A big part of that play was to become a platform SaaS company in the space. So what that means is um, by having a core product that serves the market, a platform company tries to build uh, extensions through acquisitions by acquiring other products and solutions that bolt on or add on to their existing offering. And so, for example, Personify serves the enterprise nonprofit market, and by acquiring Wild Apricot, they were able to serve the micro or smaller association market by having a solution for that space. And so today I wanted to bring on the CEO of Personify, Eric Thurston, to talk about that journey, that strategy, and his own personal growth through that process to understand what it takes to build a platform SaaS company. In the PE world, this is a very common play, and how the process starts is the the PE firm will begin with a thesis for a particular market. So in this case, the thesis would be, hey, in the nonprofit and membership space, there are a lot of software providers, but there are a few leaders, and there is an opportunity to bring a bunch of these companies together into one company so that they can play off of synergies and opportunities to deliver more value to the customer base while creating more value for shareholders at the same time. So it's a really interesting strategy and a lot of companies are deploying this in the private equity world. There's 
there's billions of dollars moving in transactions annually that are that are flying under the radar or even unseen because oftentimes uh, venture capital money sees uh, more coverage from press and media, uh, whereas there's a lot of big plays being made in all kinds of verticals and markets through the PE world. In fact, I recently read a study done by BDO on the private equity world, and 51% of the strategies being deployed by PE firms to increase the valuation of their portfolio companies came in the form of purchasing and integrating add-on companies to create more value for their portfolio companies. Um, having lived through it and being a part of Wild Apricot that got acquired by Personify, which at the time was owned by Rubicon Technology Partners, and then in 2018, we were uh, Rubicon flipped all of Personify to Pamlico Capital, um, I've gotten to see what it's like to be on both sides, where once we were acquired by the portfolio company, and then the portfolio company itself was flipped from one PE firm to another. And then at the end of December, at the end of 2018 in December, we actually ended up acquiring a company in the form of A to Z. And so I got to see what it's like to integrate a company that you're adding on to create more value for your uh, for your portfolio company as we were working through value creation with our new investor, Pamlico Capital. So I find this process to be super interesting. And often, oftentimes I feel like PE gets a bad rap um, because they're all painted by the same brush. The The common story out there is that VC will pump in way too much money and uh, they just want one company to hit like an Uber to get all their money back. And then PE, on the other hand, is going and buying a bunch of companies and really just gutting them to just drive some efficiency and get money out. Um, both of those things, you know, may be true in some circumstances, but in my experience, it's not the case across the board at all. Um, in fact, uh, the Personify strategy, one of the reasons is why it's so interesting is the plan was never to use efficiency as a main way to generate value in, inside the company. Instead, it's always been to acquire companies that complement our core set of products and uh, in order to create more value for our customers. The other part that's interesting about this episode is that I shot this um, before I had decided to resign from Wild Apricot to go full-time on How to SaaS. And uh, I'm actually gonna do an episode about that in the future, so stay tuned for that. And one of the reasons why the decision to leave was so difficult is because of how exciting things were at Personify. I had a great role as the VP of products of the entire uh, Personify portfolio of products. And we were going to go and acquire even more companies going forward. Uh, the company was growing. I had options and I was holding shares in the company. So there was a lot of opportunity and I was learning an incredible amount as we acquired more companies and went through more and more of a journey to build a multi nine figure business. And at the same time, how to SaaS was something that I was incredibly drawn to and felt compelled to work on. Um, so you're going to hear that in the episode where I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet, and you can see how excited I am to be discussing the future of Personify with Eric because of all the exciting things that are happening when it comes to the type of platform SaaS company that we're building. So both those things are there. Um, and the last thing I will say is Eric is terrific in the episode. There's a lot of nuanced lessons that he shares from his journey of being the CEO of a company like this. Um, and it's going to be easy to miss some of those things. So um just let me just point out a few things to just keep your eye on. Uh, the biggest thing that I will mention to or, or ask you to pay attention to is uh, the personal journey that Eric talks about in terms of his personal growth and the person he needed to become to lead a company like this because it is a very challenging undertaking from a human perspective as you try to integrate um, multi-million dollar companies together into one company uh, where there are hundreds of employees, different personalities, different types of leaders, founders who for whom their company is their baby and they've just sold it. And it's a very nuanced thing. So you need to be a very strong leader to be able to navigate that and to get people on board to you know paddle in the same direction. So that's the main thing I would like you to pay attention to. And beyond that, just you know, look, listen to the learnings and the strategy behind such a process. Uh, that's more the uh, technical or tactical aspect of building a platform SaaS company, but that should almost be secondary to the people side because from a, a tactical side, it's I mean, it's uh, conceptually seems much easier to understand, which is 
uh, you have a you have a core company. You can sell more products to your customers. Just go buy another company that can you can cross sell or upsell to your existing base. Which yes, while being true, is much harder to execute when you factor in the people side of the business. So really listen to that. And Eric has a lot of great takeaways on that. Other than that, I think it's uh, it's a great episode. So enjoy the listen. And if you have any feedback, just send it my way. All right, Eric, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. Thanks, Shiv. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for being on. Um, this is actually unique. I've never interviewed the CEO of the company where I've worked, so it's uh, going to be an interesting episode um, for the audience. So we want, to do, we want to do an episode on how to build a platform SaaS company, and you've been doing this for many years and having built Personify through so many different acquisitions. I wanted to bring you on to tell that story. So why don't we start with your background of how you got here, how you found Personify, what you were doing before that? Okay, sure. Uh, I won't go too far back in yeah. time, but I've, I've been in the enterprise technology market for roughly 20 years. I worked at um, a company called J.D. Edwards. We got bought by PeopleSoft and then got bought by Oracle. So I actually got some experience around M&A and what does that look like in some pretty large companies and some critical success factors from or- those Oracle days. Mm-hmm. Then worked for SAP for a while, and one of my competitors got bought by a private equity firm. So I was trying to understand, gee, what's the competitive landscape going to be like? How's it going to change? Started researching that company. And then one day they reached out to me to see if I'd want to go to work there. And so I was really intrigued with the private equity model. This was about 11 years ago, I guess. And it's really when recurring revenue, cloud, SaaS was starting to come of age. But it was also in the days of perpetual license, you know, maintenance revenue, professional services and all of those sort of things. And so I was just really, really intrigued by the model. And went to work for that company. It was called P2 Energy Solutions. It was private equity held. And, you know, one of the things I tell people is you could just see the difference you're making every day. That was a company that had eight acquisitions brought together. They'd been poorly integrated. And so we, you know, I, I started learning how to integrate those companies, how to integrate the brands, the products, how to, um, you know, change licensing models and some of those things. So that was really kind of the early days for me that led me to where I am now, which was that transition from big company, old software models to very nimble private equity backed SaaS companies. Right. And so you, you had seen what it was like to be part of a platform company that was out there acquiring companies and got to learn from mistakes and things that went well and things that didn't. So it wasn't your first rodeo at that time. Yeah, but, you know, it was more impactful because I, I had gotten into a senior leadership position. So, yeah. you know, the decisions are, you know, yours and the executive team versus being a individual contributor helping through, you know, the integration of J.D. Edwards and PeopleSoft, for example. I had a really neat project that I was working on, but you're kind of doing what you're told. And so then you graduate into, you know, we've got to make those decisions as a leadership team. And you're always thinking about, you know, long-term value of the company, you got to figure out how does this best benefit the customers, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to vote mm-hmm. um, with buying your products or not, staying with you or not. And so, you know, you're really trying to navigate this, hey, we've got maybe some old tech, a lot of tech debt, or our services have been bad on this particular product, and, and how do we get it to a better place? And so you own the decisions, and then you own the execution of those. And so, yeah, it's always like any job, it gets progressively more complex and you know, bigger decisions, but, but yeah, that's how, that's how it went. So having, having gone, gone through that journey, like how does someone go from being part of that executive team and part of that decision-making team to becoming the CEO of a platform back SaaS company? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, um, this, it's never a, a, just one thing, right? It's a lot of things, you know, I've, I'm perpetually curious. I'm a perpetual learner. And as I mentioned, I was just so intrigued with, um, with, you know, the, at the time, the new recurring revenue SaaS um, model. And so I just leaned into that to try and learn everything I could and then leaned into how do we convert these, you know, these older products, older brands to that. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. You know, you've got to make decisions like there's a saying, what got you here won't get you there. And some of the people on the team wouldn't buy in. And so you've got to make changes in people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got to make some, as I mentioned, really tough decisions on the product that, no, we're going to move in this different direction. And it's it's an unknown. So if you're going to move from, you think about the companies have gone from an on-premise, uh, perpetually licensed product in the cloud and in the SaaS, that's an uncharted territory. And a lot of people are really uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. 
And so what you've got to do is you've got to, you know, you as a person have to lean into that uncertainty, right? You could call it risk. I think it's just uncertainty. Um, and you've also got to make the tough decisions and drive there with a laser focus that we're going to get there. Like I tell people, we're going to get there. We're going to be successful. It's not going to be a linear yeah. path. It's a common phrase you use. Yeah, but you know, for me, um, it's just, you suspend disbelief is another phrase I like to use. Um, I was just able to to do that and to do you know what our investors needed because that's the other thing you got to think about. We're private equity backed, and you know we've got investors that we need to provide a return towards mm-hmm. or to, to. And so for me, it was always keeping your eye on that ball, making the tough decisions. And that turned out to be a differentiator because not everybody's willing to do that. Right, right. So what you're saying is um, in order to become the CEO of that kind of a company, you first need to kind of go on a journey to become an executive who can navigate those uh, rough waters of having, you know, uh, growth targets to hit, having change that you have to manage through, have to lead people through, still delivering value to customers, still delivering value to investors. And as you become that type of proven executive, that's the type of person a PE firm would back. Right, because if you think about uh, whether it's a venture capital firm or a private equity firm, they have money to invest. Yeah. And they need somebody to believe in that they can partner with because they tend to be financial investors. So they don't know how to run a software company. They're not technologists. They, they, they're usually incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're looking to partner with somebody that's going to also understand what they're trying to do. It's not technology for the sake of just technology. It's great technology to provide a return to them and their investors. And so one of the things I've found over the years is they're looking for somebody to partner with. Um, and there's a lot of people that, that, that don't. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a, a key thing that's needed. Right. So, and, and from what I understand, and we've gone through a few of these acquisitions now, and we've also acquired uh, a couple of companies since we bought Wild Apricot. So um, a PE firm will build, build a thesis about a market. Like, hey, there's a huge opportunity in the association management space. And they'll identify some potential targets and then they'll find a CEO who they think can prove out that thesis within that market. Is that what started it with Rubicon for you? Or was it more on the relationship side? Like, how did that get going? Right. So it was a little bit of both. Um, Rubicon Technology Partners was a brand new startup private equity firm. Mm-hmm. So that was fun to, to kind of help them and be a part of that. And they were out looking for their first acquisition. And they heard about the association market or the membership market. And so they built the thesis and then started looking for companies. Mm-hmm. They found Personify and the founder was ready to exit the business, but they needed somebody to, so they needed to bring in a CEO. Right. So that was the opportunity for me, which was, you know, they wanted somebody that wasn't the first time, uh, a first time CEO, somebody that was proven um, that they could have confidence in because again, they, they're a financial investor, not an operator. Right. So if they bring in somebody that um, it's not going to partner with them, or doesn't know what they're doing, that can set back that investment a couple of years. Right. And so it was a relationship too, though. I knew um, one of the guys at Rubicon and you know, it's, it, you know, it's kind of came together that way. Okay, got it. Okay, and then so you, you, you find Rubicon, you have this relationship, you find a company that you can acquire and when you inherited or acquired Personify, there were a lot of things that you needed to change, right? Because there was the old guard and the founder led company Talk a little bit about that, navigating that change, coming in as a CEO that wasn't the founder and taking over that business. Right, right. Yes, so there's, whenever you underwrite the founder leaving a business, that's going to be bumpy because, you know, there's going to be loyalty to that founder from the employees. There's loyalty from customers. And there's just this inherent way of doing business that, um, you know, that person, in this case, it was a, a gentleman, um, had created right, so that mm-hmm. operating model was a little bit foreign to me, right. um, but it was very comfortable to everybody at the company. Um, it was also an inflection point where the product needed modernized. It was an older product, mm-hmm. and it was heavily customized down to the source code level. And so all of a sudden, you're realizing, okay, we've got we got a little bit of work to do, mm-hmm. and um, we had to move the company in a different direction than it had been going, and so. This comes back to a little bit of what I was saying earlier. Not everybody on the team at the time believed in that. You know, the founder leaves and that was their guiding light. And I'm not the founder. You know, I might be really good, but I'm not that person. 
And so I've, I've learned that over the years. There's incredible loyalty to a founder if you've worked for that person for several years and, you know, you really believe in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a natural um, point of, of um, both opportunity and challenge in the business because people are they're opting out. And you're sitting there going, well, you know, uh-oh, you know, what do I do? Right. Like, do you lose, you know, do they have some critical knowledge? Our, our product was heavily customized and a lot of that was in people's heads. And so we went through a phase of, I would say, um, changing over the leadership team to people that aligned with my vision for the company, with Rubicon's vision for the company. And, you know, those are those are challenging times. There's, they're stressful and, um, but mm-hmm. you know, but we ultimately got through it. Right. So uh, when you talk about, transitioning some of those people out and then building that team there's a lot of turmoil internally that you kind of have to navigate through right so um talk about the types of people who make it um and the types of leaders that do fit into that model as you're starting to build that company right so um sometimes you're looking for people that have been there done that a couple of times because you build the muscle memory so for me certainly i had done this multiple times before personify and you kind of see a pattern to it. You see a rhythm to it. You know, you know, you can fix the product. It just takes time. And how fast can you can you do it? And so you're looking for people that can come in and immerse themselves in a very dynamic, changing work environment. So, you know, you're hiring people. We've had people exit the company. You've got customers that are worried. Is are we going to make it? You know, is, is Personify going to be here two years from now? And, you know, they don't want to be disrupted while you're while you're going through that. So you really need people that are willing to work hard, dive right in, can can believe in the vision of where you're going. Um, And it's fast paced, like it's moving quickly. You know, you're you're changing the tires going 60 miles an hour down the road. And you need people whose personality has pace to it. Um, You know, optimistic, can lean in, you know, really grind for a while. There's some pretty, pretty intense. It's almost like you got to see where the company's going in that beautiful future, but Right now, there's a current state, and you need people who can will that future state without yeah. getting caught up in the mess a little bit. Yeah, you're kind of willing it to happen. You know, I tell people you're going to get it's better than any MBA you, you're going to get. Like you're going to learn more in the next two years about um, people, business transformation, change management um, than you could ever possibly learn in you know Anytime. ten years back in my Oracle days or whatever. Right? It, it's it's really fast paced. Right. So, okay, got it. So you, you, ha- you built some sort of a team around you um, who was your leadership team. Now, how do you go from there to convincing Rubicon to say, let's go acquire a company in this space to grow this platform that we have? Right. So a lot of things went into that. First of all, we were a one product company. Um, an association management or member management product is very much like ERP. It's sort of the heart and soul, the guts of these organizations. So it's very, very sticky, mm-hmm. meaning they don't want to, those organizations don't want to rip it out. So you've got a certain amount of time to fix things that there's going to be a level of, of patience. And so we were fixing our product. We were fixing our just general operations about like implementations. You know, they're a fraction of what they used to be. So we've reduced total cost of ownership and a lot of those good things. And so as we started to see the light that we were, we were profitable, we were transforming the company. The next thing you do is if it's gonna be a platform, you wanna leverage that sticky product with high customer retention. You can put debt mm-hmm. on a business like that. Mm-hmm. And in our case, we didn't wanna just be selling this really big, uh, less frequent transactions. You're not winning net new customers every day. It's very right. slow. And so we started to look at what are the other products that our customers use that we can go buy. And so we went and bought a private online community. Yeah. Um, that's something we could sell to our existing customer base. It helps them, they can manage their members, but now they can engage them. And so that makes for a more mm-hmm. fulfilling experience for a member. Yeah. And we just started on that path of continually, you know, thoughtfully looking at what else fits, what else fits. That's how we bought Wild Apricot. Yeah. It's for smaller organizations. Uh, we can talk about integrating these companies here in a minute. And then we went on and bought um, a to Z, which is an events company. And so these are all highly complementary solutions. And now we've got multiple products. So you reduce business risk, you change your revenue profile and, and you know, so on and so forth. And we'll continue to do that. But it really does go back to having that really good, solid product. Um, At the core. To, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it is a platform product 
that mm-hmm. helped us build the platform company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and the, acqu- the acquisition philosophy that you just described is different from other PE platform companies that sometimes go around acquiring a lot of overlapping products. And that's a completely different strategy than what you're, you're describing, which is more about uh, acquiring add-ons or bolt-ons and cross-sell opportunities that serve the same customer base that you're building your platform around. Right. We try and stay true to our core market or one adjacency away as we buy those complementary products. But certainly you can go out and buy a lot of overlapping products. And um, there's companies that do that in every market. The challenge that rises out of that is you can't keep all those products. Mm -hmm. You've got to start to sunset those or have some strategy because you can't continue to invest in four products that do the exact same thing. Um, You're competing with each other. Yeah, you do have cost synergies. You know, you you don't. You're gonna have a a lot of really overlapping resources. So, Mm -hmm. from a pure financial engineering perspective, those can be very very successful. And it's just a different model. We've chosen to not roll up the market. We've chosen to, you know, continue to piece together those solutions, best of breed. But now we integrate them. So, Mm -hmm. the customer we have customers that run every solution we have, and they're integrated. And we have some that just run one or two for us. And so it's, a, it's been a really fun way to grow. Um, talk a little bit about that one adjacency away. I think one book that we talk about internally is that profit from the core book, which is building around the core and then strengthening that core. So how do you identify which companies can be potential targets? Because we're always looking. We're looking for uh, in different markets or different product opportunities where there could be an acquisition, right? So how do you identify and prioritize against that and decide which one you're actually going to close? Right. The book Profit from the Core has been incredibly helpful because it's, you know, don't overlook that great core business that you have. Mm-hmm. We work in the broader nonprofit market, and so there's 501c3s, uh, U.S. IRS codes, right? So your typical fundraising organizations, we work with health and wellness organizations, and associations and if you're not careful you start to um you just continue to deviate further and further away and you'll get into a market that you don't know as well so it's that increases risk Mm -hmm. so what we do is we look at the core market the vast majority of our revenue comes from the association membership market and so we continue to buy like the events business most associations run a large annual event Mm -hmm. so that really was complimentary but we also added independent show organizers. And so that would be an adjacency away. And we have to make sure that we know how they work, what are their needs, how do we fulfill their needs, um, which is kind of fun, right? It it gives you diversity in the business, Mm -hmm. Um, but um, it's not too far away from from what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then within those adjacencies, talk about, you know, opportunities that emerge. So for example, payments is an avenue that um, we look for as an, uh, underlying threat to a lot of acquisitions that we look at or potential integrations with our current product lines. Um, uh, how do you evaluating in terms of revenue potential? Because there is a significant amount of money that we're investing into buying these companies to generate a return on that. Uh, how are you evaluating that? Right. I think um, first and foremost, let me use Wild Apricot as an example. So Wild Apricot was growing at about, uh, I'd say, 17 or 18% on an annualized basis. And we bought the company, and the the thesis for that was growth. Mm-hmm. So it was not like we were trying to squeeze costs out of it right. um, and go that path. So, you know, we came in and just fully invested in what are the top two or three things going to help this business grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are now growing at 30%. And it's not like we did anything magical other than focus yeah. and and really push on some key initiatives. One of those did happen to be payments because we had we were integrated to 19 different um, payment processors, which is really expensive for us to maintain all of those. Uh, customers had a lot of issues with them, and so we've consolidated that down to a couple where we can provide our customers with better service, better integrated um, payment processing, and then we make a little bit of revenue off of that as well. Um, you know, and then we've added additional capabilities to the software. We've probably doubled our investment in go-to-market, all leaning into growth. And so not every acquisition can you do that. There's some other ones where we, you know, we may um, just need to cut costs. A lot of smaller companies, let's say 10 to 15 million in revenue, a real inflection point. Maybe they've um, over-invested 
you know, and just are kind of struggling with how do we get to that next level. And so we'll come in and that might be a blend of both growth and cost cutting with that, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, connecting that thought to the financial side, you touched on a little bit earlier, which is when you have a platform and you can build, um, you can build around that, you, you can, you can put debt on the business. So I think a lot, a lot of people don't actually understand this is um, when you're acquiring companies, you're not paying cash for the entire transaction. And it's not the investor funding the entire thing. You are putting debt on the business to acquire the company, right? So uh, with that debt come certain obligations and covenants that you have to meet. So talk a little bit about that and how that connects to the thesis of growth or efficiency. Got it. Yeah, this is one of the things that I, I really like about private equity. You know, we we have a very disciplined approach from a financial perspective. So we have, you know, private equity will come in and invest. And it's a combination of equity mm -hmm. and a combination of debt. And certainly to provide your shareholders with a great return, you want uh, it's, its return on equity. So you want to put as much debt on the business as is reasonable. But the service of that debt comes from our business. So we're the ones that are making those payments. We have covenants on the business that create great discipline. Um, you know, we have to be profitable. We have to have good cash flow. We have to have good ratios. And I, I really like that because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good check and balance for we are running a healthy company. Right. And it continue, we continue to do that because for us to make our next acquisition, um, we're going to fund it out of debt. Because, again, that provides our shareholders a better return than that initial equity. And uh, we have to be growing and be profitable to do that. And so we're constantly looking at, at those metrics, making sure that we're, we're honoring that. And overall, it creates an incredibly healthy business. We're growing um, uh, nicely, double-digit growth. Yeah. It's, not, you know, it's not hyper growth. We're not a unicorn or anything like that. But we're also very profitable and able to continue to fund. Mm -hmm. I think I think discipline is actually a really good term there. We talk about that rule of 40 where your growth rate and your profitability are above 40%. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the VC world, I feel like sometimes there's not enough discipline. And you constantly hear about companies that ramp up hiring and then have to scale down. And that meticulous approach to growth lets you scale responsibly. Yes. Yeah. And, I, and I was talking to somebody recently, and I don't think they... It was interesting how their paradigm was just incredibly different. Um, and to your point, in the VC world, maybe it's we're going to lose money. That's just not in my makeup. Yeah. You know, I don't know how you know Uber or some of these, you know, they lose a billion dollars a quarter or Tesla mm -hmm. or whatever. I, I, I just can't even comprehend that. Right. I know it works. Um, yeah. but that's not how I'm wired. It works for some of them. <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah, it doesn't work for all of them. That's yeah, good. That's yeah. fair uh, yeah. fair shift. But for us, yeah, the rule of 40, so our, our growth rate plus our EBITDA, rate um you know we're not quite at 40 we're just underneath that but yeah i think it's it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of when our next investors want to come on board and our current ones exit we're gonna have a great return because we're healthy we're growing and um yeah we'll you know we'll probably buy a couple more companies this year and the reason is because we have a strong balance sheet yeah it's just part of part of life yeah so so talk about the because you because once you put that debt on the balance sheet and those covenants and things like that are there, yeah. right? That's now part of reality. So how do you manage through that? While at the same time, the the counterfactual or the, or the the other side of it is that you still need to acquire companies to grow the business, right? So how do you leave cushion? Like, how do you manage that balance? Well, yeah, you, we always leave some cushion in case things don't go as planned. But it really comes through a disciplined approach to the business around how do we measure it? What are the metrics? You know, we look at it you know, every month, how much did we sell? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what are the, the new software bookings coming in the door? Um, are we delivering revenue? What's our customer retention? You know, are we keeping customers? And you look at all of those different metrics of the business um, all the time mm -hmm. to see which way they're trending. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're, if they're not trending in the right direction, then you're taking, you're not buying companies. You're taking action to figure out, hey, what's not working? So, you know, for example, sales could always be a challenge. Uh, maybe one of our markets isn't doing quite as well or, you know, we had some turnover on our sales team. And so we're ramping up some new salespeople and you're kind of you're lagging a little bit. And so you got to focus, be laser focused on fixing that and getting it where you need it to be. So it's a it's a constant. Right. 
you, you know, constantly tweaking the, um, the engine, so to speak. Um, but that's, again, comes back to being very disciplined and running a good, healthy business. I tell our employees, you know, we, we make payroll, you know, we're, we're going to grow, we're going to be profitable. And I think there's a lot to be said for, for that, for that, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So as it's kind of a, it's interesting, right? Because in your, in your seat as CEO or the executives, um, the, the, that are running this business all of us are kind of stewards of the business and um, there's a lot of uh, competing pressure points right you got to figure out investors you got to figure out customers you got to figure out employees right so at the same time like as C as a CEO um, and you're acquired you acquired small world labs a few years back then we acquired wild apricot um, in 2017 um, a to Z at the end of 2018 and we're probably gonna look to acquire more companies going forward um, how do you balance the financial side with the investors with the culture side of you're bringing in another company they have employees and they have their own culture and integrating that into one organization into one company yeah that's a great question Shiv you know I think uh, I'm not the model of balance by the way (laughs) (laughs) you know we have great invest investors great partners with Pamlico Capital Um, they work hand in hand with us on identifying you know companies to buy um, you know, they just provide so much help and it's the, the quote unquote management of them really is, is just partnering with them. So that's great. Um, you, I spend a lot of time with them. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really important relationship to me. Yeah. Um, because again, as we've talked earlier, I, they need to know what we're doing and th- they can have confidence that I'm running a good business. And, you know, so the more, the more we're in, in sync, the better it is. So I do spend a lot of time with them. Then it comes down to, you know, really to the team that I have within the business. Um, If I have to dive deep into why is our utilization of our consulting team lower this month, then, you know, that's not a good thing because I can't be out looking for companies to buy. You know, I spend a lot of time networking with other private equity firms, with CEOs of companies that are competitors, companies I might want to buy. And so, you know, I really try and spend a lot of my time there. you know, which I couldn't do a few years ago. I mentioned we had to turn over the team. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time in team building, culture building mm-hmm. of the executive team, the leadership team. So that's a combination of offsites. It's a combination of bringing in professional coaches, bringing, we just brought in recently an organizational consultant to help me, you know, we're going to double in the next three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, do we have the right team, the right structure? How do we do that? And so they've been tremendously helpful for me with that and then to be, you know, just to be fully present and engaged in, in, you know, the people and, um, you know, working together, being collegial, good relationships. I tell people, you know, do your job and do it incredibly well because you can influence the world from there. Um, we serve some great organizations and if you're doing a great job, you can truly have a major impact and then have fun along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, if, if it's not fun, you need to go find somewhere else yeah. to work, you know, cause we work really, really hard. It's just continually building that culture. Um, you know, I have a goal that I should be able to not be in the business for a month. Yep. Um, and I come back and it's just continuing mm-hmm. to run. Like that's that's the model I'm looking for in the team. And sometimes that we do well with that. Sometimes we don't. But overall, we're, you know, um, that's a key part of the balance side mm-hmm. of it. And, and how do you keep people excited through all the changes, right? So you even if you look at an acquiring company, there are people who have certain roles and they have certain level of authority. And then you enter this bigger organization where decisions are structured differently and the org structure is different, right? How do you keep people excited about um, the opportunity? Yeah. One of the things that I'll talk about to people is we're in the middle of something really exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many dead end jobs out there, companies that are failing or aren't going anywhere. Like sometimes we don't sit there and look at what we're a part of. Right. So we have great backing. We're a financially sound company. We have an incredible customer base and we're growing. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you can't get excited about that as an individual, like if you just want this plodding along job and you know, nothing ever changes, like this is not the place for you. Um, I will guarantee you that. And so to me, I think sometimes you just talk about that. Go, Man, this is like, like the resumes pour in to work for us. Um, and so that's, you know, there's excitement in that. I try and emphasize the fact that, you know, we are growing. You're either growing or dying, right? There's no middle direction. 
So let's be part of growing. Let's lean into growth. And, and I try and talk about that to people. Um, but there's also a lot of fear. We buy companies. You know, you went through it when we bought one apricot. Sure, yeah. The story I like to tell is, you know, you, you look across the table at the people from the company you're buying. They're scared to death. They don't know what, you know, are you going to fire me? What are you going to do? Yeah. And so I try and take a very um, thoughtful approach. Like the people really, really matter. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm incredibly open and transparent because people are smart. They're going to figure it out. And so you can't say we're not going to do something and then do it. Because you also build a reputation, right? But then you fast forward a year and a half, and you're now sitting on, as wild, a former Wild Apricot guy, you're sitting on the personified side of the table when we buy A to Z. Yeah. So you now all of a sudden go, oh, I, I see how this works. I like this. Like, this is a really cool career. Mm-hmm. There's great career opportunities. You know, technology's just going nuts. You know, other organizations are going to look for other executives, and, you know, people have a great chance to learn here and be a part of something pretty cool. Um, but, cult, you know, so those are some of the things I do. But mm-hmm. culture is a constant challenge. It's something, you know, you, you feel it, you know what it is. Um, yeah. And when you're blending these cultures, you're bringing it in. And, you know, every time we've bought a company, the founder ends up ultimately, you know, leaving because they want to go do other things and don't want to have a boss. And, yeah. you know, some of that, it's all fine. It's good stuff. But um, you just, you, we had to constantly work at it. So mm-hmm. it's never, you're never there, ever. Yeah, and I'm asking the question for the audience's benefit, but even just... Um, from my shoes of going through the acquisition where I was part of the acquiring company's executive team, now part of the executive team of the uh, companies that is acquiring companies. It's incredibly exciting to be part of that. To, and then the, the thing that I tell people on the team is just where else are you going to get to work on multiple product lines, integrating them together versus, you know, there's a lot of single product companies around. The scale is significantly smaller. We're talking about building a multi nine figure business and um, you don't get to do that often and be part of something that special. So definitely it's, it's exciting stuff and that gets the culture going too. So, and you gotta be comfortable with change, you know, like when you're buying companies, your processes are not as clean, they're not as crisp, you know, and and part of that is because it it could be how you hire people. If you bought four companies, I'll guarantee you they all did it different, you know, so you're trying to get that to be, a standard process across the whole company and then you buy another company and it changes again sure. and that's why you need leaders that can be adaptable and flexible um, because it, it does change and that's hard that stresses you out sometimes and, yeah. and you've you've gone through it but yeah I'm glad you see the energy and opportunity to it I, th- I think a big part of the, the acquisition process that doesn't get talked about enough is there's often a lot of fear when there's change and especially when in an acquisition the whole way decisions are made is going to change. So you all your mind defaults to the worst of yeah. everything's going to get broken, everything we've built is going to go away, and you kind of have to change your mindset. And as you come to the table to work like a team, people are just people, whether you're on the acquiring side or being acquired. If you come to the team willing to work with people and create solutions together, you end up creating something special together. So it's a lot about the attitude and the mindset, which I think sometimes gets lost and you need a leader who can navigate through that to make people feel safe Um, because sometimes leaders will kind of shortcut it or ignore that piece of the puzzle but if that leader makes people feel safe then the 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 integration goes a lot smoother yeah and i think a couple of of thoughts on that shiv you know, we, we just, we don't communicate enough. You know, if, if I'm critical of, of myself and some of the things like we just, ha- you just can never communicate enough because to your point, people will go to the darkest place and it's, you can't tell them once you got to continue to tell them and you got to be consistent and yeah. transparent. And also, you know, we're in a fortunate position that I was not in, in 2013 and 14 when we bought the company, you know, I had to make a bunch of really, really difficult decisions, really tough changes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, not only was that hard, but that's part of what, you know, the, the negative reaction or reputation of private equity as a investment vehicle gets. Mm-hmm. And we had to change the company. Like if we wouldn't have fixed the product, we would never have sold another deal. Right. Our customers would have just left, left, left. You know, they're not, they're not going to keep moving forward with you. And so, you know, if you talk to some people that were part of the company at that time, they, they probably don't like what they went through. They right. probably don't like me, right? You know, and so it's really a difficult, it's a difficult thing to go through. And what I think I'm probably the most proud of is where we're at now. You know, so yeah, we went through, made some really tough decisions. Um, and 
now everything we do is just it's just more positive and more positive we're adding to the portfolio um, we're, we're in a position to better manage culture people's fear because we, we've built the credibility over the last four or five years and so and certainly there's firms that come in and they'll just you know they're just going to cut people and you know be incredibly aggressive and mm-hmm. i feel fortunate that that's not our approach yeah i, I think actually part of the fear uh in the pe world comes from organizations that approach it that way because there are pe firms that will go in and just look at efficiency as a way to increase company valuation and sometimes that culture component or the safety component um, gets thrown out the window, right? And so if you have a strong CEO who can lead it, and that's actually very topical here, which is a strong CEO who can build a platform company, have that vision to build a more positive outlook of growth so that it creates more opportunity for everybody involved. It creates a better environment for everyone. Uh, Even yesterday, actually, we're shooting this in Toronto and you were here yesterday, we did a town hall with the Wild Apricot team, and it was an awesome town hall, uh, vulnerable, you shared all the plans, super transparent, and that got everybody excited, right? It's a, It changed a lot, the people had so many questions, and they were worried about certain things, and it changed everything because that because of that transparency. So um, that's a great example of, of how you can lead in the right way. Yeah, and the communication, and just openness and transparency. Again, I've learned people are smart, they're going to figure it out. Like yeah. they're going to figure it, if you're, if you're trying to tell them something you're not going to do, you know, they'll the figure you out. So you got to be transparent. You got to be open and um, yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's treat people with respect. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to cover that, especially because I think uh, when you're building these kinds of companies, people are, are the key to success. So that's awesome. A um, couple of other things. So you're as a CEO of a company like this, you, you were touching on a little bit earlier. I want to dive deeper on it is, what is what does the CEO of a platform SaaS company do, and where do you want to move towards? You said I don't want to be in the business; I want to work on the business, right? That's a commonly used term for visionaries and CEOs, right? So talk about that, especially as you scale the company through stages. Like it looks different when you're a ten million dollar company versus when you're a hundred million dollar company. So right, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So if I go back, you know, in time, I'm an operational guy, and so for me to you know think about operational metrics and processes and how we do things in the business that's you know that's really in my wheelhouse and what i've learned over time is that you have to get further and further away from that as you get bigger mm-hmm. you got to hire people that know that and, and love that and so you know the the evolution for me is to, you know when we're fixing uh, some of the things with personify six years ago and i have to you know uh, roll up your sleeves and just really be in the details sure. over time you don't do that anymore and that's a real personal growth as to how do you, you know, get comfortable with letting somebody else do that. You're checking in, you're looking at the metrics, but you got to trust them. Sure. Um, and so for me, that's just a continual growth and evolution of hiring people that can, um, that can own those things, that can figure that out so that I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just to continue to use like the consulting services example, billable utilization, you know, the margin of that business. I've got some great leaders that they've just got it. And so, you know, that allows me to freeze me up to work on the business, as you said. So what's our strategy? What's our culture? And managing our investors are probably the top three things I focus on. You know, so great investors, we have our strategy. How do we execute on it? But a good example is this week I had meetings with some potential acquisition targets. set the stage for us to, you know, at least have the right conversations. And now combination of the Personify team, the Pamlico team will come in and we'll have those discussions and see if we want to put a deal together there. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of time doing that. And then on culture, you know, traveling around to the offices, meeting with the employees. We're just part of us stepping up and scaling up to be a bigger company as we're reconfiguring our people operations right now, hiring a new leader for that, um, reinvesting in it, you know, whether that's, um, uh, attracting talent, retaining talent, uh, you know, training, career path development. That's really fun for me um, because, again, uh, th- that is the key. It's an overused cliche, but if you reward people, if you let them know they're part of something special, mm-hmm. they're going to stick around and they're going to help you be great, right? And so that's that's a big part of, of how I spend my time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just, again, just to summarize for the audience, strategy, culture, and investors slash resources is really... Yeah. the wheelhouse where you kind of want to be yeah. more and more. 
Um, that's great. Um, where does Personify go from here? What is your outlook in five years? Where, where do you see the company? Yeah, so we have a goal of um, within five years, we'll double the company. I think we're going to get there a lot quicker, actually. Yeah. So we're kind of mid $60 million now. We'll say $125 million. Um, rule of 45, not the rule of 40. So our growth rate plus our EBITDA margin be 45. And we're going to be the most admired company in our market. We do not strive to be the biggest. Um, there's other people that are out there doing that. And, you know, I think that's great. We want to be the most admired. And I had a question yesterday in the town hall about how do you know that, you right? Like part of it, you feel it, yeah. you know, we had our user conference recently and man, the customer, just the tone of it was phenomenal. They're happy. They love where we're going. Um, of course, all your happy customers are there. You don't have many unhappy ones there, yeah. mm-hmm. but we've taken that, that event where we'll, we'll invite non-customers, customers, you know, so. Um, really feeling good about where we're going, but there's market perception, there's voice mm-hmm. of the customer survey, there's all those quantifiable things we can measure to know that we're, um, we are becoming one of the most admired in our market. So that's really where we're going, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel incredibly confident about it. We have great organic growth rates, we'll grow inorganically, um, you know, we'll get there in a sensible way, not in a, sure. you know, in a way that's not. And um, yeah, working on being most admired and that, inherent in that is you got to be treating your employees well because if your employees aren't happy and you know enjoying what you're doing they're not going to be treating your customers in a way that you know gets you there so it's really it's a great challenge and it's you know the hard part about it is you're you're dealing with people you're not dealing with here's the billable utilization metric like you go from dealing with things to dealing with people and navigating that it's incredibly fun and and challenging what would you say are one or two lessons that you've gained through this journey of building Personify to this point that you're going to take with you um, on that vision that you just shared? Oh, that's a great question. A couple of things that I've learned. Um, I think I've some personal skills I've learned is just how to deal with people better. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, especially when you get this job, you think you need to know all the answers. Uh, you think you need to treat people a certain way. And I was dealing with a, a coach actually a few years ago, and she said to me, "When are you just going to be yourself right. and get your own mojo, you know, back?" And that was really interesting to me. And so I think um, for me, that's been a major learning as well as skills around, you know, being yourself. Um, and people see that and they like that. Mm-hmm. And then how do you manage people? So that you know, part of it is you got to you got to be transparent. Transparency can be great. But it also means you got to tell people how they're doing. Right. And I don't beat around the bush. Right. That's another thing I've learned. There's no, like, if I don't, if I don't think something's going well, I'm going to tell you. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about it. Right. Um, and it alleviates things so much quicker than hoping the person's going to figure it out. Um, and I didn't do that years and years ago. So I think that's another key learning is just be straight up with people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can be seen as blunt. Sure. Um, but people appreciate it. It's better than not knowing. Yeah, it's better than wondering what people think. Because right. people wonder what I think about them. Sure. So I'm just going to let them know. Yes. And I'm like, and I, there's sugar in their spice, man. Hey, you're doing a great job with this, but, you know, you, you kind of missed it here. Let's go. You know, yeah. come on, let's go. We're here. Progress, not perfection is one of the things I say. Like, I am not, you know, we don't have to be perfect, but we got to keep moving forward. And so I think for me that learning how to do that, though, in a way that's acceptable, receivable by the employees and the market is, is a key learning. I think the other thing I've really learned is to um, – have more empathy with our customers, you know, to really, um, it's one thing to think you care about customers, yeah. but it's another thing to get to the point where they know you care about them. And I go back to when we were making some tough decisions and those were hard on our customers. And, you know, so to me, I've, I've really focused on how do we be customer centric? Again, we're going to be profitable. We're going to mm-hmm. run a good business, mm-hmm. but how do we be more transparent, you know, and just have a, be earnest for our customer success. So dealing with people, and then how to show that earnestness with customers for their success are probably two things. I think I've evolved. Mm-hmm. I've come miles in that regard. As you were saying that, just something that came across my mind is just culture, uh, I like to say, is, um, is a personification of <laughs> is a personification of the CEO's like authentic self, right? So uh, whoever the CEO is will eventually permeate itself throughout the culture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. What you said is great. Like the more you are yourself and yeah. you have your mojo, the better the company would be more aligned with your vision, right? So 
And that'd be advice that I would give to you know somebody that's a new CEO because I do mentor people and I say you know you, you got to be yourself. Yeah. Quit being who you think your investors think you should be. Yeah. Quit being who you thought a CEO was before you got here, right. and just be yourself. Just be yourself. And get a good night's sleep. Because yeah. one of the things when you're CEOs you don't sleep well, yeah. and that can cause you to be grumpy, yeah. right? But uh, you know, for a first-time CEO, there's no book for it. I mean, there's books you can read, but I mean, it's the loneliest job because you, you know, your, your board is not your team. They're your board of directors. Yeah. They're looking for you to have confidence in the business, to have a strategy around the business. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not there for you to cry on their shoulder. Yeah. And your team. Needs to lean on you. They're <laughs> leaning on you yeah. because you're putting them through some really tough sure. times, right? So you got people on your team that have never, they're like, what's going to happen when we make that decision? Right. And because they're worried, they're fearful. And you got to go, no, we're, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Yeah. And so you have to seek outside, you know, people to talk to, people to work with. I've worked with some coaches that, you know, that have helped me. Um, but it's a lonely job. And I think, you know, my advice for any first-time CEO is get somebody you can talk to. Mm-hmm. Understand neither of those teams are really – they're not your buddies, right? right. And you're going to be incredibly lonely if you don't have somebody to talk to, somebody to help. You're going to question your decisions. Um you know, and I, I just think the, the sooner when I finally figured that out, I wish I'd have figured it out sooner. Yeah, yeah. It changed the way I operated. It changed who I was as somebody to work for, to work with. And it changed the success of the company. It's, sure. it's really made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to actually ask about that is how do you, because it is a very lonely job um, because you, there are certain people you can't share things with. So um, outside people, are, are you part of a peer group? We're talking about it a little bit over dinner. That's something that you're... Yeah. Looking more into? I'm not part of a peer group. I know yeah. you've done those things. And actually, had somebody recommend that to me last week. Um, I do network with others. I live in Austin, and so there's some great, um, you know, there's a lot of tech companies, some great CEOs there. And I, I, do, I do spend time with a few of them and network mm-hmm. with them. And so I've got a little bit of a, of a informal peer group, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I mentioned a couple of different coaches that I've worked with, professional-type uh, CEO coaches. But I haven't done, you know, Vistage or EO or any of those, and, and I probably need to do that. And that, that might be something might have helped me had I done that early on. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of let myself get isolated. Right. Again, you're not yourself. You're trying to, right. you want to, you got this job because you're good at, you know, maybe being, mm-hmm. you know, head of sales or something like that. And you're kind of learning, yeah. you know, how do I, how do I cover all of these different functions and skills and act like I know what I'm doing, right? And yeah. I think the sooner you just get somebody to help you through that, the better. Yeah, EO helped me a bunch. So I, I would highly recommend that. So I mentioned that to you last night. So um, last question. Talk about um, the self-governance component of this, right? Because it is a lonely job. There is pressure from investors. There's pressure from customers. Employees are all looking to you to lead them through all these changes. Like there's a – even myself in my role uh, or the roles I've had here over the years, like, I found that I've had to invest a lot into my personal um, development, personal ability to manage difficult situations and deal with it uh, with a positive mindset and and, and keep moving forward, right? So talk about the work you've done there on your own personal um, development. How much time we have left? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I I mentioned a little bit of, of it in the last, um, you know, some of those comments we just went through. I think that's a tough one, self-governance, um, because you do have to, to do that. I would say in the early days, I was probably less good about it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've done is I've created like forced blocks in my schedule for time to work, time to think, time to read, time to go on vacation, time to turn the phone off, right? So I'll give you an example. I don't um, have a device in my bedroom. Because, you know, otherwise, all of a sudden it's one in the morning, I'm sitting there on my iPad, and my wife's like, you know, wish she'd go to sleep kind of thing, right? So, you know, I do some things like that that seem sort of silly, but but I do. Um, And, you know, it's it's an internal self-discipline, I think, which is maybe not the the, the answer you're looking for, but I really do. I mean, that's that's a good example of it. I mean, I'm very goal-oriented. I write down goals. I I set them. I've got a, a... a worksheet for as corny as that might sound that I use to set those goals. You got to visualize it. I'm committed to this because I've told somebody about it. I've committed resource, you know, like this whole kind of methodology I use to try and keep myself honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's probably a lot of it. You know, I'm kind of a grinder at heart though. I mean, that's, um, 
you know, that's what I have to pull back from. And, mm-hmm. and so I've, I've had to, um, to do some of those things. And I put people in my life that tell me that. They hit me over the head and they say, hey, yeah. you know, you're working too hard. you got to back away from it. And what I found, by the way, that I would tell people is when I back away, because I, I, like, I will not quit. I'm not, you know, I'm yeah. not a quitter. And I will grind and grind and grind. And I don't realize the influence, the negative influence that has on people at work and in my personal life until I stop doing it. Right. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, if I would just chill out a little bit. People can chill every, out too. <laughs> and they work harder. Yeah, they do yeah, a better yeah, job. Yeah, they sure. quit worrying about why I'm sure. so stressed out. Because sure. people, you know, again, kind of thinking of, of if you're a newer CEO, like people read your intensity. Yeah. And like I'm intense and I'll, I'll walk out of my office and, you know, I, I might be going to lunch and I'm, I'm deep in thought about something and I'm walking through the office. What I didn't used to realize that everybody's watching me. Sure. And they're like, is he mad? Is he like, what's right. going on? Is the company in trouble? Right. Because they go to their dark place. Of right? course. Of he course. must be getting ready to fire all of us. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah. that's that's a really interesting thing. I, I, I like to walk. And um, years ago, we bought a company. And I would get on a phone call and go for a walk outside. Mm-hmm. Everybody was watching me thinking <laughs> he's coming up with this, you know, devious strategy to fire all this. And yeah. the answer was really, I just want to go for a walk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so you have to realize, and that's been, you know, again, when you think about um, some of the things that I've changed and self-governed myself, is like, I'm an optimistic person, but I'm also intense. Yeah. But you got to find a little bit more of that optimistic yeah. self, and you got to show it. Right. right. And so that would be another thing, you know, that I try and self self-regulate on have you found that um your loops of if you even have a downswing at some points your loop of coming back up is a lot faster as time has gone on yes right yes. so because you've been able you've been training yourself i've been training myself and i've also re- I've, I've also come to realize it's never as bad as i think it is. yes yeah like you know i remember one day really in the early days of personify we were we were like one week away from signing a really big contract yeah and we lost it Mm. those are the ones you never forget right yeah you remember the wins but you remember the losses harder and yeah. I, I was just like oh my goodness we're gonna make it right? yeah like, you're just like holy smokes yeah and just like you know i tell the employees we're gonna be fine we're gonna make it you yeah. gotta make sure you're telling yourself that too sure yeah i rebound from those much faster now right um and that's just through experiences like you just have done it enough times like we're gonna be fine keep doing the right things we're gonna get to where we need yeah. to go so yeah in the, I think it's in the Air Force. Well, you're a pilot, so you might know this. It's called the your OODA loop, um, which is O O D A. It's an acronym for observe, orient, decide, act. And Air Force pilots need to have an incredibly fast OODA loop, yeah, because of how fast they need to make decisions. Yeah. So it's just like I've kind of been training myself to say, you know, the faster you make, you come out of that hole the faster you can lead people because yeah. the people that take the longest can't lead anybody yeah, because they haven't figured out themselves, right? Yeah, so I would, that's actually very interesting. I am a pilot. When you get into a pickle and you're flying, what you're trained to do, I'm not an Air Force trained yeah. pilot, they say the first thing you do is fly the airplane. Right. Quit worrying <laughs> yeah. about everything, like fly the airplane. Right. And some of the worst decisions that led to wrecks are because somebody overreacted immediately and did something that was counter to their training and they wrecked the airplane. Yeah. They say fly it's, it's aviate, right. right? Right. I mean, that's aviate first. Communicate later. Right. right? If, you know, if air traffic control is calling you, they can wait. Right. They're not sitting in an airplane. They don't know what's going on. Out. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's a, a good way of thinking about it. Like, fly the airplane. Keep going. Right. You know, that's... Right. Um, but pace, you know, I mentioned earlier, the ability to go through that loop quickly to get yourself out of it, to move on, is, is I think, just a key... Uh, it's a key factor in a lot of people's success to mm-hmm. keep moving and right. move quickly. Those are all the questions I had. <laughs> it's a really, really interesting interview, actually. I think I appreciate you having me. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. You make me think about things I don't think about that much, right? Yeah. Like I kind of do it, yeah. and um, it's sort of fun to just sit back and think about it. And um, you know, like I said, I've, I've started to mentor more people. Uh, I've, I've been, I've learned that managing private equity people is a skill set, right? Um, integrating companies is a skill set. Exiting founders is a skill set. Yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't set out to build those skills, but here I am with those. And I think, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of lessons learned, a lot of fun things about it. I appreciate you. Yeah. Asking but, me some of it. Yeah, and uh, to show gratitude, just thanks for being on. I think yeah. um, what's interesting about this, we started by talking about how to build a platform SaaS company, yeah. but. You know, those are the mechanics. It's like, oh, you have one platform company, 
and then you go acquire a company that you can cross sell and those are the things that people think is happening you know that's that like hey it's more the strategy but it's really the people the the personal development becoming the person you need to be to lead that type of an organization so i kind of like the way we kind of took this so yeah. thank you for coming on and sharing all that yep absolutely thank you very much thanks sir that's it for today's episode, guys. Before you end this episode, I have a few requests. Uh, one, if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Number two, please leave a rating and review uh, just so that other people who are looking for similar information or podcasts like this can discover it better. And number three, if you want to work with us at How to SaaS, check out the website www.howtosass.com or email me directly. Uh, that's shiv at howtosass.com. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.